Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. Follow the science. It's the exhortation we hear all the time from politicians and bureaucrats to activists and academics. Whether at work or at school or via the mainstream media, we are awash in a reverence to science. But what if science is being used to advance an ideological agenda and great harm as the result? Joining us today on RegWatch to discuss this possibility is Dr. Annie Claycamp, an experimental psychologist, medical analyst, and evidence-based health advocate. Dr. Claycamp, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you co-authored with Helen Redmond an article recently published at filtermag.org titled COVID and Vaping, a Perfect Storm of Misleading Science and Media. In that article, you argue the COVID-19 pandemic is being cynically used as a golden opportunity to prove e-cigarettes damage the lungs and thus destroy vaping as a viable alternative to smoking. How did you come to this position? It was well before the New York Times article came out that Helen and I specifically wrote about. It was the Gaia article that came out in August um, that was being used to argue for prohibition of e-cigarettes. A letter went from a congressman to the FDA and that flagged it for me. And I took a close read of the Gaia article and was shocked to see that one small observational study conducted in early May of this year Um, was being used for such a strong, heavy-handed policy request. And then when the New York Times article came out, I took a deep dive in that and sort of looked at, okay, so again, we're sort of framing vaping as a COVID-related risk factor. Where's the evidence here? And um, was really disappointed to see there wasn't much there. And I guess from my perspective as a psychologist, a researcher, it felt like there was this fear part of COVID that we all have. It's a pandemic. It was being sort of laid on e-cigarettes, one more thing um, that people could use to instill fear around them. So I have the New York Times article up here. Smokers and vapors may be a greater risk for COVID-19. This is April 9th. Now, we've talked about this quite a bit on our show, but not with a scientist who's taken a look at this and said, wait a minute, this is garbage. Yeah. So, and you know, the one we we do mention that one, the one we did a deep dive on was um, a Dr. Wu wrote it and it was published recently and it, it conflated um, the, the lung injury issue with COVID as well. And I, I went through the whole article. There were a lot of citations of other New York Times articles, the one you just showed. And in fact, the only um, citation that at all was actually looking at COVID and vaping was the Gaia article, which is the one that um, also has issues methodologically that um, researchers have called for retraction. So it it's interesting that the more recent New York Times article came out because it it built on these other New York Times pieces, the one you just showed being one. They tend to do that at New York Times. <laughs> uh, fill our viewers in on your uh, background in teaching and in working in medicine and how that connects uh, with e-cigarettes. Yeah, so um, I got my PhD in 2007 studying nicotine. It was a strange time because e-cigarettes, as you know, were coming on the market and I was not at all studying them. I was studying nicotine replacement therapy and my focus was looking at nicotine in that form and the gum or the patch and its effects on cognition and smokers or non-smokers. And so when e-cigarettes came in, I was actually moving on to my fellowship at Hopkins studying a bunch of 
different drugs, not nicotine. And so e-cigarettes were sort of gaining in popularity. And I actually first learned about them, not as a scientist, as a friend of people trying to use them. And my father trying to use them to quit smoking in his 60s. And um, I came into this whole topic in in an intellectual way when I started working with a consulting firm called Penny Associates in 2014. They actually recruited me from my job. Um, I was a medical analyst. I had left my fellowship to do work evaluating new health technology, oddly enough, but not nicotine, but a range of health technology for a company. And Penny scooped me up and wanted me to work with them because they were working with Enjoy, the e-cigarette manufacturer then. So you've done research then in the e-cigarette area for industry. Yes, right. So we, when I first got hired at Penny as a consultant, we worked with Enjoy. And really it was um, a lot of writing, systematic reviews, evaluating the literature, and trying to help them navigate sort of the regulatory landscape. Um, about six months, maybe uh, eight months into my time at Penny, they signed a contract with RJ Reynolds. Um, I wasn't part of that decision, but I sort of knew it could happen. And that contract was for us to stop work with Enjoy and start work with them on non-combustible products. But as you can imagine, that was um, a whole other level from Enjoy, given that RJ Reynolds is a tobacco company. So have you received then pushback regarding that previous work in consulting and tobacco harm reduction for RJ Reynolds? Yes. Um, and I, I try to be vocal about this. I've written about it. I would like to publish more about it. Um, so from 2015, when we first signed the contract to when I left Penny in 2018. So I have not been affiliated with any funding from nicotine or tobacco for two years. I currently work on topics related to chronic pain and addiction, like opioid use disorder through funding actually from FDA, but not CTP. Um, that, that was a tough time and still is. So even speaking with you now, um, I'm certain there will people, be people that don't listen to me. But what I found was as I worked with Penny and understood more about the tension between tobacco harm reduction industry and the continued harm smoking does, um, that we someone like me that went into working with Penny as fearful of all industry, I'll say, you know, in 2007, when I got my PhD, I thought that people were actually seriously flawed that worked with industry and inherently biased. I was one of those people. It's a pretty close-minded way to think, um, especially when we're dealing with something like smoking that kills so many people and continues to. And then we have this novel health technology. So with that said, as I worked with Penny, I got a little bit more um, inspired and motivated to see what I could do to help a company that had unfortunately gained a lot of money selling a very deadly product. Could it, could it happen? Could we help them switch their game plan? But during that, I, um, you know, people removed themselves from committees with me. Uh, I was on a basic science committee at SRNT, the leading, you know, organization for nicotine. And they did that because they didn't agree with my affiliation. And I did write a critique of the Surgeon General's report and got that published. Um, I spoke up at SRNT and questioned the panel and I think I had very legitimate um, evidence-based critiques in that letter that I wrote. And the panel from the CDC responded to my letter. And the only thing that they did in the first sentence, they referred to my affiliation with tobacco and the rest of their piece, and everybody's welcome to read it, um, doubles down on how their um, report on e-cigarettes is actually quite solid and objective, which I very much disagree with. 
So uh, there's two things here. I want to talk uh, briefly in a second here about the Surgeon General's report, and then we'll dive into the current stuff. But this issue with regard to where funding comes from, I mean, it's being used as, you know, a cudgel, a cudgel to just knock out scientists that are working in the area where they're getting funded by industry. But I don't see that as being fair. Do you? Because there's so much bias that's coming uh, from scientists that are getting their money solely from government. And, and that bias is as strong or if not stronger. Right. Yeah. You know, um, the way I view it and I try to not take it personally, but that's been impossible. It probably, it means too much to me, but, um, we're all biased and we all, you know, I come on your show as someone that's in a relationship with someone that vapes and stops smoking that way. I, I bring that very personal story to my advocacy of harm reduction and tobacco harm reduction. So I think, um, we need to be transparent and open and, take what people say, um, their, their background that does influence what they say, but also trying to hear and read through that and actually what's their argument. And if there is an argument, maybe they're able to make that like me and my criticism in the SGR because they've stepped the side of the, the consensus. And I stepped outside of that sort of group think I was in as an academic researcher. And it allowed me this sort of fresh take on science. And I think that's valuable. I don't say that because I wrote it. I think that a lot of other people have, have the potential to help this argument, help this dialogue. Um, and right now, yeah, it's very uh, black and white thinking around it. And it's, it's a problem for science. I think it really is truly because uh, you can't think of a contentious area of research. And it's contentious, mind you, because of the ideological battle that's going on. But I mean, you can't uh, take money from anybody that's in fossil fuels and research anything in climate. What areas of research are you allowed to do without the mob coming after you uh, if you don't have the right funding? Right. Yeah. And um, it's a very uh, concise list. And there are um, I know that I know trainees. I wrote a paper about um, alternative careers in nicotine and tobacco science, published that in nicotine and tobacco research. It's part of the reason people remove themselves from my committee is by no means advocating that going with the dark side, which I've been told I'm on forever now, <laughs> even <laughs> if I haven't worked with industry in two years. But um it was more about, we've got to think outside the box. There, there's only so much funding. And um, if we're all going to consider CTP funding and NIH funding, the, the only way to go, um, yeah, it does create an inherent bias, but it also creates a, a really limited thinking on these topics. Because when you are able to do research in different ways and see different perspectives, and honestly, me being able to understand people in industry, whether or not I necessarily agreed with what they did with their day, they were ethical people and they they gave me perspective on the decisions they made related to tobacco, which is ultimately what we're talking about. We're talking about one of the most um, damaging consumer products on the planet and we can't even get you know, a, a simple health technology advancement proved that the Cochrane Review is saying it's better than nicotine replacement therapy. It's shocking. Yeah. So you saw our recent piece then with uh, Dr. Hartman Boyce? Yes. And that that's 
really important to me, and it speaks to what I'm here today about. Cochrane Review represents a standard of evidence synthesis. Now, they focus, of course, on randomized controlled trials. That's a design type that we can't use for everything. So I don't want to mean to come across elitist. Observational studies that we need for certain topics are essential. But what the Cochrane, the most up-to-date one, shows is science evolves, and we need to keep using our most rigorous ways to consolidate that. And by comparing and being able to look at e-cigarettes to a known approved therapeutic for smoking, it says so much about its potential to help smokers. Yeah, it's important. And let me ask you, you know, for that top line, do you believe that vaping is uh, something that's effective? Does it save lives? I do believe that. I see where um, certain people with different views than me that maybe focus more on youth in their analysis of this topic could be fearful of the population impact. Um, I, I can push myself there, but no, I, I very much, um, from my vantage point, which is very focused on middle and older smokers, um, yes. And I wish my dad had been able to stop. He died a smoker trying to switch to vaping at age 63 from a heart attack. And I just, I, I very much believe that. And there is anecdote to my belief here, but it's also based in the evidence and the Cochrane review really like, supports that. It's, uh, it's interesting because anecdotal evidence only seems to matter and be disregarded when it's coming from the harm reduction side. The way I see it is, um, I do think e-cigarettes, uh, I'm not against regulation. I very much think that there's a way to regulate them to push them further towards middle age, older people, or, you know, someone that maybe wanted to smoke in their 20s could use it. But I think that um, I'm on the right side of history with this. And I very much think that e-cigarettes can be a benefit on a population level. And that is very interesting to say that because I certainly know for a fact that the opponents to vaping believe wholeheartedly that they're on the right side of history. And that's what can be so frustrating is because they're missing uh, the boat on it, in my opinion. Let's go to the Surgeon General's report real briefly about it, because we covered this back in 2016. And I found it quite odd that this had come out because in 2016, there was still quite a bit of virtue of vaping going on and had not been demonized to the extent that it has uh, with the uh, vaping epidemic in the Valley. So just taking a look at this, what was your problem and your issue with the Surgeon General's report in 2016? Yeah, so um, just a, a brief, I don't want to bore you with my background, but you know, the, the training I had before I came back to nicotine was how do you consolidate a lot of divergent evidence to get a bottom line on a new health technology? So when I read the report, it was pretty naive the way I wrote it, read it. I, you know, stepping back into this world, I didn't realize that there was always already this fear of youth. And I sort of understood it, but not this extreme. So when I'm looking at this report, I realize this has none of the, the components that are rigorous when you combine a bunch of evidence into a, a review of the evidence, which you would assume that a Surgeon General's report would be. So for example, there is a method section in this report, but it says evidence was added as it fit it actually, the quote I use, it's shocking, but a preconceived idea. If the evidence was published after 2016, people that wrote the report actually said, and you can read this in the method, that they added it at will. That's that's confirmation bias. It's cherry picking. But 
But that's not just the only thing. So when you go into the report, it's not systematic at all. It's pooling and choosing a lot of the report that focuses on my expertise, which was nicotine and cognition and um, memory attention. It's mostly animal research. And I've written, I've published a meta-analysis on nicotine and cognition with my postdoc mentor, Steve Heishman. And um, that wasn't even cited. And, and in fact, one of my biggest criticisms was a study out of the UK, the SNAP trial. I haven't followed up on this in the last couple of years, but at the time of this Surgeon General's report, it's the only human study that's looked at the effects of nicotine, pure nicotine, on human development multiple years after birth. And what that SNAP trial found is that babies born to moms that were using the nicotine patch were further along developmentally than those babies that were born to moms that did not use it. And the authors of the SNAP trial say in their published randomized controlled trial that they think that's probably because the moms reduced smoking early in gestation. That study is not cited at all. The only human study to look at nicotine's effects on the developing brain. And these are the things I criticized and that were not at all considered in the response. Do you believe that nicotine causes brain damage? No, I don't. But I do think with any psychoactive substance and sugar, anything, you're going to, if you are developing, and we are throughout our life, but there are sensitive periods and I think we do need to be aware and caffeine's on this list, you know, all alcohol is on this list that there, there are going to be impacts. Now the long lasting impacts, whether it's a gateway, um, a lot of that to me is overblown and very much precautionary principle. And I think that we need to weigh it when we message this on FDA's website about nicotine's effects on the brain. We really need to weigh that with, what kind of messaging are we sending to the general public about the harms of nicotine? And yes, we need to caution youth about wearing seatbelts, about premarital sex, but we also need to understand there's a whole other segment of populations is trying to understand what does nicotine do to the body? And I think, unfortunately, that messaging around nicotine in the brain has really, it's, it's done a lot of harm, actually. My biggest thing is relative risk. So we're just losing that in that continuum of harm, which I think is essential for us to accurately talk about nicotine. It is um, like anything else in the world, not black and white. It depends on um, how you deliver the nicotine. And we know that combustion is, it, it takes nicotine and tobacco to a whole other level. And we know 100% that e-cigarettes don't deliver carbon monoxide. They deliver significantly less carcinogens. And that doesn't matter how old you are. And so I, these headlines, and it happened in the New York Times article, it conflated smoking and vaping as if they are the same thing. And we know from basic studies in the lab, and we have a decade's worth of research now, we can't keep saying we need more, that e-cigarettes do can, like any substance or drug, including caffeine, have negative effects, but compared to smoking, the leading preventable cause of disease and death, like that, that should always be our go home because that, that product is still on the market. And I've read headlines that cigarettes are selling faster than e-cigarettes during COVID because people are either switching back or more interested in smoking because it's more pleasurable. Let's jump into your article, The Science and COVID. Let's just start with a general question. Now we have COVID, the pandemic. Do you see a correlation between the corruption of science around vaping and is there a corruption of science around COVID? So 
Um, and I have to say this, I'm not a COVID researcher in any stretch. I do read the news obsessively about it. That's about it. Um, I would say the similarity I'm seeing is that you have a fast moving uh, threat to health. It's um, catching a lot of our attention. It's very novel. And um, it's also science is latching onto that. There's a lot of funding for it. And so we're trying to catch up. So we're generating a lot of research really quickly on COVID. I was tracking it for a while. We had about 80,000 publications specific to COVID by August on a WHO website. And um, I think what's similar to e-cigarettes is we're trying to find answers. Understandably, we're scared. We want to see um, something quickly and soon. But there's a lot of bad science in the sense of uncontrolled studies There's could potentially be biased. Now, I say this not to criticize researchers, and I say it in the best light possible, perhaps the incentive is to publish and to not publish something quality. But nonetheless, if you have a lot of um, not well uh, done, not rigorous studies out there, it can sort of muddy the waters. And if we're not talking about rigor, when we report on these studies in the media, which is often the case with e-cigarettes and with COVID, you're just confusing the public. And we're also jumping quickly on to scientific findings, like the article I mentioned with e-cigarettes released in May on youth and COVID that are not repli- they're not replicating and they're not actually representing the true state of the world, which is the point of science. Now, explain for our audience uh, some of the standard issues when it comes to, you know, bad science. Have they controlled for alternative explanations in the data. So if you just gather a bunch of survey responses and you correlate whether they said, yes, I got a COVID test and I was positive, and yes, I used an e-cigarette in my life, and you find a significant relationship, which is what happened in the Gaia article, that's one thing. But as a scientist, that should be framed. If it is published, which is a bit surprising that was published, very surprising, you have to frame that as, This is one explanation of many because that's not a study that's designed to look at causation. What you need for causation and what makes a study more rigorous is having control over when the participants exposed to a drug, then measuring those effects and having sort of that time embedded in the study. So this is why we talk about randomized controlled trials being the gold standard. So that's when you bring participants in, you randomly assign them to say a placebo and an intervention, and then you use these um, times of control when they're exposed to the drug to test them on key variables. So for example, if you're looking at use of Um, Or if you're looking at COVID testing, you would want a time A and you would want to wait six months. And then you would look more at, okay, how do these variables relate? But even a study like that, you have to control for intervening variables. So for example, in the Gaia study, they found that people that had ever used a cigarette were more likely to test positive for COVID. But they did not measure whether whether those people were more likely to say, be hanging out with friends, not wear a mask, not wash their hands even being sexually active, all these things that can also predict COVID. So I think the key is to the the scientist, if they're being 
rigorous. If they've done a study that doesn't have a lot of control, this needs to be very transparent. And that means they need to downplay their conclusions. And they certainly shouldn't frame their findings as if something causes something else. It's the back and forth on COVID that just drives so many people crazy. You know, where it came from, how it's transmitted. The models predicted millions of deaths. Then the models failed in those predictions. Then you've got masks work and then masks don't work and then lockdowns save lives and then lockdowns don't save lives and then kids are at risk and then kids are not at risk. And then you've got herd immunity is real and then herd immunity is medieval. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, on every single major COVID issue, there is a back and forth on either side, a binary that exists out there. I mean, my God, what's going on here with science? What might be happening, and it's reflected in both, is that we're sort of misusing the term science and um, it's legitimized a lot of headlines. And so it's become trendy to say, and science says, but science is constantly evolving. And the point of science is to actually be looking for fault in your methods, to not ever have a solid yes, no, this is what's happening. And so what I think we're seeing in the news and in what's being communicated us to us is um, a, a twisting of what science should do for society. And I think it brings up deeper questions. How much can we as scientists actually Uh, positively influence society if, in fact, the science we're producing is only confusing. And and I don't pretend to be doing it well at all. Um, I'm trying to, and coming on your show is part of that, I think, being transparent. And it does take some critical thought. And I think it makes for messy um, coverage of of topics like this, where we have to talk like this instead of, um, you know, a sensation grabbing New York Times headline. And then it's very clear to my grandmother, vaping's awful. And that case closed, it's very clean. And then, but then the next article, right? That, uh, that's vaping's wonderful. That's a case closed clean. Nothing is that simple, but it does take some critical thought. And I, I do wonder if we're selling this idea that science can do more than it can. I think part of the problem with science these days is that they, they're not following the scientific method. Right. Yes, that's true. And I, I, I mean, my view from being in academia is that we can get quite arrogant and also we have incentives on us to publish. I'm not in that structure anymore, even though I have an academic affiliation now, I sort of remove myself. But if you really want to dig deep into science, at least in America, I mean, our whole structure is you have to get grants, you need to publish, and your um, reputation in the field is more about how much intellectual power you have and I think less how much truth you're adding to the body of work of science. And I think that is includes tobacco harm right. reduction. And that's sad because it sort of hijacks that whole topic. How many people have not quit smoking as a result of that uh, publication mill and then mainstream media that follows up with it? I would imagine that there's blood on people's hands. I think so. Um, my interest is, I've mentioned it, aging adults, so 65 and over. It's These are... Um, I noticed early in my research that these are people not included in research studies. We purposely stop recruiting at 65. It's a complicated group. But we know that the number of older adults is going to more than double in the next 20 years in the U.S. and globally. And we also know that smoking rates for older adults, and I'm working on getting these data out now, have not changed in over three decades in the U.S. They're hovering around 10%. So even if the number of older adults maintains the same that are smoking, we know that the number of older adults is growing. So the absolute number of older smokers is increasing. 
nicotine. And older smokers across multiple studies are the most uninformed on the relative harms. So they think that nicotine is the disease-causing, cancer-causing property in cigarettes. They think that um, cigarettes that don't contain nicotine are safer than ones that contain them. So to me, and that's like a gradient, the older you get, the more misinformed you are. And yeah, those are the people that carry the most burden, the most risk, the most, most, um, damage to their body that I, you know, it, it's Pelosa just published on COPD and how you can reduce these, the suffering. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a cruel irony but they've just shut down the entire Western world, you know, locked down a billion people ostensibly to save the lives of older people, 65 plus. Yet it's that same group that dies more from smoking and they're just throw them under the bus. Yeah, I can't shake that um, sort of relationship between COVID and the e-cigarette thing because, you know, the e-cigarette thing, my my biggest um, pet peeve has been the hyper focus on youth. And I, I think we can focus on the full lifespan and doesn't mean we don't think about youth. And I, I think that's important, but it's just, it's shocking. And it is interesting. We have the capacity to care about older adults. And I very much do. It's shown with COVID. We know that they have the highest mortality risk. It's really scary. I haven't seen my mom in over a year because of it. But it's just not the same. And maybe because, you know, smoking's deemed shameful. And um, if you've done that throughout your life, maybe people think, well, why would we help you now? I don't know. Sometimes I get cynical and believe that. It's religious in nature. Like there, there's mm -hmm. almost a, when I use the word reverence, I mean that for real. Like believe mm -hmm. in science, like believe in mm -hmm. it. Do you get the same sense that that's out there? And is it also within the research community? Or is this something that the lay people have and researchers stroke it? I think that um, there is a bit of a, a religion to science even within. So it's not just stoking that, at least from my perspective, and then sitting back and like enjoying that power. But I, I think that um, it's the same on both sides. So when we blindly endorse something without stepping back and either asking people questions about it or doing our own critical thinking on it. It's no different than any belief system. And science is not some sort of miraculous, um, easy way to live life. It's a way of thinking. And I think we've given it a lot of power and made it a little mysterious and maybe unintentionally. There's a lot of ego, of course, involved in academia fuels that it's a hierarchy. Um, and so if you can say you're a scientist and use a lot of jargon and not really get down to the bottom line, science is about getting to truth. And there's no one that's more equipped to do that than others. It's just some of us have studied the method more. But if we use a bunch of jargon and we make strong claims, that doesn't make us more or closer to the truth. Um, so I think, honestly, what I see the biggest problem is people aren't humble enough as scientists and able to sort of step back and know that they're always going to be biased. It's part of it. It's being a human. You're not supernatural if you studied science. And then being able to talk to the general public, not just presenting at conferences. I think it's essential that you learn to distill this down and not be smug about it. There's nothing to be smug about because scientists are wrong all the time and they should be. The problem is when they don't admit it and they cover their tracks or they try to um, overstate or overinterpret research findings for notoriety or something along those lines.
So you say truth, and we do live in a postmodern age. So postmodernism, its fundamental aspect of it is, is that it does not believe in truth. There is no such thing mm -hmm. as truth. And mm -hmm. so isn't that not really the real problem here is that there's these competing things that are pulling on science. One is to continue to use the scientific method to try to uncover mm -hmm. truth, yet the entire organization mm -hmm of our society now is one that does not believe there is truth. It's all about your narrative, my narrative, my lived experience yeah. and so mm -hmm. forth. So how do you square my lived experience and my narrative with the seeking of truth? Yeah, I probably drink too much <laughs> with trying to reconcile that. <laughs> um, I, I, I struggle with it. Um, I'm a little disillusioned with I, I blindly, I mean, I went straight into science, never took a break. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, and I say that again, as I, you know, it's sort of the way I think, I believe that, but I hear what you're saying. And I also know that um, I often think I know the truth and know I did the study, but do you know the truth? Have you ever done the study to an extent that you can know the full truth? And maybe our biggest problem as scientists is expecting too much from it and always knowing, like one of my professors said in college, yeah, I, you know, I come in here and I teach you about the scientific method and then I go home and I know that it's not always going to provide me the answers I need. And sometimes you don't know. And maybe our inability to say that and be honest and vulnerable with each other and just saying, I'm doing my best here. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to wear a mask and I'm going to try to reduce exposure. I don't think that's, I don't, is that the best way? I, I'm not helping my mental health by isolating, but Ed, you know, I'm no more um, informed than any other person just because I endorse this belief system which is the scientific method. So I, that's sort of a vague answer to your question. Just know that I struggle with it. With regard to say the media, what's your assessment, you know, of them? How critical can you, and are you prepared to be? I feel like the main driver with media that I see and the intersection with science is the sensationalism and catching those viewers and really creating a long narrative um, that it includes a lot of things that are not at all science. And that was what was so disappointing. I mean, it was a bit of a naive read of mine of that New York Times article. I knew that the New York Times sort of had a slant on e-cigarettes, but as I read it closely and really dug in, um, you know, I wanted to, and I, I still might reach out to the author. I don't have any ill will towards her. I'm just perplexed how you could use science in that way. The same way I was with the Surgeon General's report. It's really not science. You're, you're telling a story, but to put it in this package as if it's science is really mislabeling it. How come we didn't during this lockdown see all these stories in the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Vice, everywhere else, you know, all these, you know, vaping, hating areas, you know, talking about the kids that, you know, are withdrawing, you know, having withdrawals from the nicotine. Like where are the paved parents getting pieces done talking about their kids being ravaged in nicotine withdrawal? Mm -hmm. There right. was not a single story about a single mm -hmm. kid that got caught, you know, running out of the house to go, you know, pick up a jewel or something like that. Nothing. No. Yeah. And the data just came out that our e-cigarette use rates and smoking rates for youth are at a record low. The e-cigarette rates have really dipped. Um, yeah, you would think that there would be some serious stories. I mean, we know that nicotine withdrawal compared to other drug withdrawals, it's just not going to be the same intensity. Now, the craving potentially, but you would think that would precipitate 
continued e-cigarette use. Well, at least yeah. one story, like how they couldn't even generate th this whole mill that generates hundreds, if not thousands of anti-vaping stories a year, couldn't generate one. So let's jump back then to how we started this show, which was the argument that you made, you and Helen Redman in your article in Filter, which was that there are researchers out there who are cynically using uh, COVID as a way in which to prove that e-cigarettes damage the lungs. So let's dive into that specifically. What's, what do you mean by that? Um, you know, I, I, in the best light, I assume that the researchers that published the study, um, Gaia and colleagues, and then that study was sort of put out in the media in like a blitz. And then a congressperson used that study as the sole study to ask for e-cigarette prohibition. I assume that they were really caught up in the fear of COVID and the fear of e-cigarettes and it just came together. But I, I don't know, but it, it just really seems like using a, a time when we're all very scared to sort of layer on to the stories of battery explosions, popcorn lung, Evoli, um, where, where do I stop? I mean, all the harm focused stories and sensationalized stories, it was almost like, let, here's one more we can add on to the pile. And I'm not seeing that this connection between vaping and COVID is holding up. If it was such a strong relationship, we're already in getting near November. And I'm not seeing the other studies even supporting this and maybe a couple surveys, but the hard data showing it as a risk factor, I'm not seeing that. The FDA, uh, uh, the Real Cost campaign here on YouTube, um, as you can see, they've got vaping brain trolled challenge. That's mm. the, that's, they, they, that's two years ago, I guess. I didn't even notice that before. Let's just quickly see here. Times during class and I tell her, do you talk to him? And it's like, So that's uh, that's how addictive nicotine are. You will reach right down there in a toilet bowl. Yeah, you know, I just um, never worked for the FDA, so I can't know how that works. But um, I just don't understand the lack of balance. Where's the more public health England or trying to educate, not just about the harms. There's no other side to this. And it, it doesn't, it seems that we've, we've got enough intellect in this world to be able to message that a product, we don't, we're not saying everyone just go jump in there and use it, but there's some benefits here. And we, alcohol is so accessible and we somehow are able to manage that it's harmful to people and also you can use it responsibly. So bizarre to me that we're not able to balance that in the messaging in the U.S. It's a problem. I mean, the, the misconceptions are growing. Yeah, tragically, that is the case. So what can be done about that, Dr. Clickham? Um, well, I, I wish that messaging could be better tailored. And so, you know, the, the one you just showed me and the targeted messaging about harms in the brain and youth focused, um, that's very different than the message you'd want to give someone that's 50 and that's been smoking for 20 years. And maybe they're considering like, so I don't want to quit. 
but I don't like the nicotine patch. I've tried it. It gives me nightmares. And honestly, the gum doesn't even help. And if they knew, well, there is a step on this continuum where it doesn't burn. It's not smoke coming out of it. And there is safety to it. And it's been shown to help people stop. And as a behavioral pharmacologist, e-cigarettes have the things I studied when I was looking at the patch, you need behavioral cues and you need the pharmacological principles of nicotine. And when you combine those two, it makes sense from the scientific perspective I was trained in that that product would reduce craving, would substitute easier because it's appealing and it has the cues, which we know if you give someone a denicotinized cigarette, no nicotine in it, they're just puffing on this cigarette, it's combustible, they will have reductions in withdrawal. My lab showed this and published it repeatedly well before e-cigarettes came on the market. So I wish that we could educate the public about the importance of these cues, the importance of pairing nicotine in them. And there's a way to step down. We can, you know, it's certainly we could educate people on that while maintaining that, you know, children shouldn't use these products. If there's one single thing that you could change that would make the difference, what would that be? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, well, there's the selfish, selfish answer, which would be, I wish we could figure out how to get all stakeholders in the same room and in a respectful, important dialogue. And that, by that, I mean, 100% consumers of vape products or any nicotine or tobacco product, they would have to take up a good portion of the room. They're the reason we're here, but we also need regulators. We need medical doctors, researchers, industry, I would love that. And I think that if we could do that in a productive way, we need that. We have to have that. But I think that that's a selfish choice because that's about me and my ability to make a change. I think if we could just do one thing, it would be to increase access to e-cigarettes, whether that's reduce taxes, um, improve communication about them, or have them available in a way that's safe. We can have them in, I don't know, similar to condoms, have them available to people that want to quit and be able to do that in a way that's responsible. So we're not handing them out to kids, but we're making an accessible to people and not creating hurdles so that they can't go to their vape shop anymore to get the product. Now they have to order it from the Juul site and they can't even get the flavor they want of Juul. It's just removing those hurdles, I think would be huge. Well, and that is the case, as every smoker knows, all those little hurdles help in you not quitting. That's the key thing. You throw any hurdle at you, at you that's just another reason not to quit. Yes, I hear that. And it's important for any type of health behavior change. The more hurdles we have, the more burden we have to making the change, whether it's going to the gym because it's 10 miles away versus down the street. So you've got to improve that access. And I, it's just, I, it's, it's everything's going the opposite way right now. It's very disheartening, which I know you're on the same page with, but certainly we can make some progress, especially with youth rates being so low certainly we can open that gate a bit for people that are actually smokers wanting to switch. Well, maybe we can drag everybody back to 2016. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Dr. Claycamp, thank you so much for coming on the show. Just hang tight right there. And that is it for this edition of RegWatch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com. That's support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our vaping coverage. It's easy. Dig into your wallet, find a few dollars, and toss them our way. You'll be happy you did, and so will we. And while online, don't forget to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.